0: Hi, I'm Lee Rail and you're listening to Pod, a podcast dedicated to the people shaping South Africa through entrepreneurship, sustainability, and design. Before we get started, please rate us on iTunes and share this with your friends. It really helps us a lot. Rob Stokes, today's guest, is the epitome of an entrepreneurial spirit. He just oozes the stuff. He started off by founding Quirk, arguably South Africa's most successful digital agency, eventually selling to WPP in 2014. He's on the board of a multitude of businesses, some of which he helped start, and today spends most of his time at the Red and Yellow School of Business. Rob is passionate about developing, transforming, growing new and established businesses, predominantly in the technology and education sectors. I don't think I've ever spanned so many topics inside one hour of conversation. We touched on some big things like saving the world, the importance of education, voting, freedom of speech, and the impending ecological collapse. And some lighter things like fishing, Porsches, and family. Hold on to your seats and get ready for a ride. I love this exchange and I'm sure you will too. Rob, thanks so much for coming on to SeedPod. Feels like we're in a bit of a rush this morning. I know you've got to leave soon. Um, yeah thank you for your time I know you're a busy guy
1: wonderful to be sitting here with you today
0: awesome Uh, on the drive here I was thinking like how do you land yourself in a in a school because you're running red and yellow now is one of the things you do and I've always seen you as like the super enthusiastic super motivated super um, I don't know what the word is you're always aiming big Um, so how does this this fit into your kind of universe?
1: Yeah, that's uh that's a thought-provoking question for me. Um, I do think big, and I th- I, I guess in m- m- this example, uh, the the thinking big is that um, I'm trying to save the world. <laughs> um, we are sitting currently in the Red and Yellow Sound Studio, which is not a fancy space, but it's effective. And for me, Red and Yellow is about learning. Uh, less about what read you know, teaches for me personally but more about education as a whole uh it's, a, it's an academic institution that's been around for for many years 25 odd years and so it knows a bit of stuff as an institution and i know nothing about education well i didn't uh when i started here not quite full-time but i come in every day uh, about from about three or four years ago and um yeah, you know, There's so much to education, there's so many different uh, facets to it, uh, from education s- businesses, uh, organizations, through the ecosystem, financing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and literally every day I learn something new, and red and yellow is my primary conduit to that.
0: Okay. So so there's like a, a personal... So you're getting stuff out of it from your own yeah, you're learning, you're like, growing. It's
1: like a growing. textbook. It's like a live textbook for me. And look, I love this place. Uh, it's It's got an incredible feel and a heart to it. They do amazing things. Um Renier really has got the social promise that, that 10% of the students don't have to pay for themselves, and we have regularly exceeded that by more than 50%, and that really makes me feel good. And so I guess I get to come here every day, feel good, work with amazing people who really are here for the right reasons, and in the process figure out what makes education tick so that hopefully, not guaranteed, hopefully I can figure out a way to leverage that system and ecosystem for the better of the world. So,
0: so this is where the saving the world part comes in.
1: Yeah, I really believe that um, educated people make better decisions in life, and whether that's about decisions for their own uh, self-benefit, so you know, just making good life choices, um, or decisions that that influence people around them, like voting for politicians. Uh, you know, I I think that using our, our um, much maligned former president Jacob Zuma, uh, I can see why he would get voted in first time because he's a very charismatic chap and and people tend to fall for charismatic chaps uh, or people, charismatic people. Uh, but the second time is because... We have a huge volume of people who are uneducated and can't think critically uh, with data presented to them and so therefore fall back on charisma, uh, even when the data strongly suggests that this is a poor decision, because by the time it came to electing him for his second term, it was fairly obvious that uh, he was one of the most corrupt individuals that our country's ever seen, and yet with some good dancing and some singing. You can, he can bring a, a millions of people along for the ride. Um, I'm not looking to educate people so they agree with me. I'm looking for educate people to educate people so they make good decisions. And if those decisions are not the same decisions as me, I'm actually fine with that. I really mm. am. But um, I do believe that educated people don't vote for corrupt politicians repeatedly at least maybe the first time maybe
0: <laughs> look i think i i trust you away from politics because i don't actually know enough i'll be the first one to admit that but i think it's so you don't much have m-
1: to know much Lee to know that Jacob Zuma no no it. i know
0: I, <laughs> I, I know that much but I th- it's so much more complicated from my perspective th- there's so much history in the ANC. So they were voting for the... I think many people voted for ANC, not necessarily... I agree with um, I agree Jacob with Zuma. And for them to vote someone else is a very... It's a big deal and a difficult thing.
1: It absolutely is. But again, if, you, if you're if you a rational adult, who can think critically about things. At the very least, you'll think critically to the point of, of voting abstinence, which I think a lot of people have. Um, but, you know, I, I've literally met people who two weeks after voting... Uh, for the ANC say oh I knew nothing was going to change and that's two weeks you know it's, it's not like the world changed in two weeks why did you vote for that person well you know I always do and th- that's just someone who hasn't given it any thought and I would never encourage my children to just meander through life without thinking about things mm-hmm. I mean yes yeah, certain decisions don't need to be thought about what shoes to wear in the morning who cares but you know, decisions that are going to affect your life and the f- affect the society in which you have to live and operate and, and raise a family are very, very important decisions. And, um, and this isn't about politics actually in any way. I just use that as an example of, uh, you know, I think, that, frankly, the world's in trouble. Uh, I think we've, we've, we've got lost on our values. Um, you know, another good example for me is freedom of speech. Uh, uh, I think people have confused their rights to not be offended. Uh, which is not a right, Um, and and for freedom of speech. And it's like, yeah, absolutely, freedom of speech is important except for the stuff. Well, no, that except can't happen. You're either free or you're not. Free is a pretty binary circumstance. And
0: I mean, that's a whole interesting topic on its own.
1: (laughs) It it is, but I, I, I really think that if you think critically about freedom of speech and you're educated, you'll see that most of the very important change that we've had in society over the last well at least 100 years, but even further back, have largely been driven by a conversation that started out very uncomfortably. And, you know, whether it's it's women's right to vote, the democratic South Africa that we now have, um, if those, at the time, dissenting voices were shut down, uh, would society have changed? You know, the first people that got up and said gays should have the right to marry... Uh, were really frowned upon and, and shunned by society. But thankfully, they were allowed to have a voice. And that voice eventually grew. And it gave the the timid and the afraid some confidence to join a movement. And eventually, the movement grew to the point where uh, the frankly ridiculous ridiculously prejudicial circumstance that would prevent two people that love each other from joining in a union, which frankly is no one's business to begin with. Um, th- we wouldn't have the you know the right to 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 have uh, homosexual marriage today if we didn't have freedom of speech. But we forget that, and we instead we're like, oh, I don't like what he has to say, it offends me, and therefore don't say it. That's ridiculous. Uh, the world is bigger than that. Um,
0: so again, h- how do you though? T- kind of differentiate if you if you take the New Zealand incident as an example um with the shooting Mm -hmm. where from this is my limited understanding of it that the guy was a a a right-wing um individual and there was a role that YouTube played in his journey in in so a he, he broadcasted onto Facebook and there's been a lot of talk around how social media plays a big role. I think YouTube is one of them in kind of going down that rabbit hole. Once you start investigating things, then the algorithms send you more down the rabbit hole. And that's a negative rabbit hole versus a positive rabbit mm. hole. How how do you differentiate freedom of speech there when it's destructive? And um, even if they don't feel like it is.
1: Yeah. So that's a very important question. Uh, I very much uh, feel that a private platform has a right to display or not display or whatever content or, or conversation they like. So if YouTube wants to shut down all hate speech, good for them. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I, their right uh, is there to do it. When I'm talking about uh, shutting down free speech, it's when the government does it with the law. Um, if you believe that a central authority, not a private company, but a central authority, Uh, has the right to shut down someone's uh, ability to say something, that's what I have a problem with. Putting people in jail for speaking in their mind, that I have a problem with. No matter how much I disagree with what they have to say, I think the right to say something is not the same as saying it is right. You know, Just because someone says you are an X, Y, Z, worst term in the world, just fill in the blanks as you wish. That doesn't mean what they say is right, but they still have the right to say it and And I really do believe that words are not violence uh words can incite people to violence, but there's a a gain in t- intelligence uh, and and in more than intelligence education sits in the middle of that because uh someone who thinks critically when when Judas Milema gets up and says you know kill the boer a critical person critical thinker says No, I'm not going to do that because that would be taking a human life and and that's not the right way to solve problems. But someone who can be blindly manipulated by rhetoric and and populist promises might well go and kill someone off the back of that. I want Julius Malema to have the right to say that. I do not agree with what he says in that context, but I want his right to say it because I do believe that the solution to the inciting the violence problem is not to shut down the speech, just to edu- educate the people who have the potential to be violent. Because mm. the only reason in my opinion that someone would be violent in that circumstance is if they are incapable of thinking properly.
0: Do, do we not all have an inherent um, potential to be violent? In, inside of all of us we have that
1: well, yeah, potential is a strong word I mean desire shouldn't be conflated with potential I mean I could punch you in the nose right now I'm not going to because <laughs> it would be a very unpleasant thing to do I also, I also for what it's worth I, I, I agree with uh, very much with societal uh, and kind of moralistic responses to offensive speech so You know, there was this lady who who called the the traffic officer uh, a very bad word, and I think she got sentenced to two years in prison, and it was a very bad word, particularly in the context of South Africa. I don't think she should be in prison, but I think society should call her out. Uh, No one should be her friend. No one should give her a job. No one should buy anything from her or engage with her uh, because... She's demonstrated herself to be a disgusting human being. What's useful about freedom of speech is that we now know she's a disgusting human being. What's in her mind isn't going to change whether she can speak her mind or not. It's still in there. Now we at least get to say, hey, you are disgusting. We want nothing to do with you as a society. We're not going to put you in jail for it.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's the difference because I think it's important that we as a society are having conversations and ideas thrust at us that make us question. And I should give you an idea, an example that's less uh, inflammatory in most circumstances because it's not about race or religion or sex or whatever, but it's about anti-vaxxers. So I think anti-vaxxers are are awful human beings and I equate them to drunk drivers um, because vaccines don't work on all children. And if you happen to have a child and you often don't know if the vaccine ha- doesn't work on your child until they get measles. Now, if the vaccine doesn't work on your child, the only hope you really have is herd immunity. If you then get some people who choose not to vaccinate, you reduce herd immunity. And as a society… <laughs> you wanted
0: one. to choose an, a non-inflammatory conversation. Well, it's not, it's not inflammatory
1: in that it's not about you know the, the typically inflammatory subjects. But let me, let me finish here because… This is actually really, I think, a useful example. Um, so so it was either Facebook or YouTube who said they're not actually going to shut down the anti-vaxxer uh, posts or news or content or whatever it is on the basis of freedom of speech. What they are going to do is they're not going to allow those content producers to monetize that content. And I think it's the case of Facebook. If someone puts up an anti vax post, they are going to put up factual counterposts. So in other words, inform, educate the reader to make up their own mind. Because the truth is Lee, that of all the vaccines that are out there, there may actually be one that doesn't, it well, really doesn't work, but may be bad for us. I do not believe that vaccines cause autism. There's literally no scientific proof to back that up whatsoever. Um, and yet it's still held on to 20 years after a bullshit study was released. still held on to as the reason to not vaccinate your child. Um, but there is a slim chance that a particular vaccine is dangerous for a certain type of person. And if we shut down all dissenting voices around vaccinations, then we will never question and continue to question the decisions that we've made in the past. So if we say, oh, vaccines are all good then we will never keep investigating what might be bad about them. But if we allow the voices in our society to say, hey, vaccines are bad, vaccines are bad, it will force some element of society to keep testing. And therefore, we're more likely to find truth. And that's actually what I want is truth. Mm. Uh, Until then, if you don't want to vaccinate your child, I support that decision. You need to go and live on an island. Do not come to my child's school or I'm bringing peanuts. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, peanuts, the cartoon character, or peanuts the <laughs> Bring in the bar of peanuts. And uh,
1: if your child is allergic, then you know, so be it. No, I would never do that. But yeah, I, I really, f- I feel strongly about. it I think it's massively irresponsible. Um, and and again, you know, educated people seek facts. Uh, every human has has cognitive biases. We're riddled with them. The more you educate yourself, the more mindful you are of of your circumstances in the moment and and the data and information you're receiving. The, the more you're able to sift through those cognitive biases and find the truth. And the reality is that there isn't any science that supports the anti-vax movement. I, I've looked for it because I have a very strong opinion about this. And when I'm petitioning my children's schools about this, I want to make sure I'm armed with the facts. I have literally not found one single piece of science. But I have a lot of facts at my disposal like, hey, there's no more polio, you know. Anti-vax movements in the U.S., measles is on the rise. Like, it's fairly solid evidence to show that vaccinations have massively helped certain chronic diseases and anti-vaccinations have allowed certain chronic diseases to return. Those mm-hmm. those are facts. That's I'm not making that up. But to tie uh, vaccinations with autism has been debunked. Um, many 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 times in fact i think the person who released that study has actually been de- has, has been um not disbarred that's a legal term but has had their medical license revoked because their research was rubbish and yet just because jenny mccarthy believes it so millions of people endanger the lives of millions of children and that that really bothers me and i think educated people wouldn't do that lee and that's what, part of the reason I'm here to give you a really long, round, <laughs> long-winded answer to why I'm in education because I think it's important for the world.
0: It is. Um, I think, and back to South African context, uh, for in my, it's the biggest failing that we've as a country. If on day one we'd fix the education problem in South Africa, we'd be at, we'd be a global player by now. we percent
1: my, yeah. my biggest concern about South Africa is. 20 years of no education or very poor education because we can have a great president stand up and be a great leader which so far in my opinion he's not being which disappoints me because I deeply love the Cyril but um, you can't overnight fix 20 million people with a poor education that's got to work its way through the system and until we start fixing it at the very bottom it's not going to work its way it's just going to persist and that problem is extra triple word score compounded in the twenty-first century when you have artificial intelligence creeping into the work for, into the workplace into the workforce, and it's going to make low-level jobs even more scarce? So now you've got an uneducated population in a shrinking labour market um, and robotics. Yeah, and and uh, I, I that really doesn't bode well for South Africa, and and I'm here and I'm fighting. And I'm extremely patriotic. I love this country, but I'm very concerned because of those fundamental issues that don't change, cannot change overnight. There's so much stuff you can change in a six to twelve month period. That's just not one of them.
0: But uh, they talk talk about leapfrogging in 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 Africa in a lot of contexts. Do you think that education can be one of those where you we use technology to Leapfrog our poor education system and and make things improve quicker. Quicker, yes.
1: Um, You know, can we properly fast track? No. You know, I think you know to maybe try and put some some measurables to it. Could we? Could we two x the ability the speed of education? Yes. Could we ten x it? No, because there's only so much information a human can take in. And and the thing with education, it's um, it's it's. I'm not sure the right way to articulate this, but it's it's kind of built-in layers. Um, you know, the, I think the biggest problem we have is, is some stat that, you know, some really low percentage of 10-year-olds in South Africa can't read for comprehension. Uh, so really high percentage can't read and therefore a low percentage can read. And you can't learn anything until you yeah. can read. I mean, re- reading is probably the single most important skill because it, every other skill can be learnt off the back of that. Yeah. Even counting can be learnt by reading. But you can't learn to read without... You can't do anything without reading. You can't self-teach. And I, and I think the world is moving, fortunately, because it, it, it frees up resources, uh, towards a self-teaching scenario and, and more assisted learning, but self-driven. But again, nothing without reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you get to the age of 10 and you can't read, you also then become quite demoralized. You lose confidence. Confidence and and the ability to absorb information are hugely linked. And so every single thing suffers from that. Mm. Uh, if there's one intervention i would make in in education from the age of four to the age of 80 it would be le- it would be reading and and actually that does seem to be happening but uh, personally if i was in charge there'd be no Danelle, um <laughs> and there would be a lots of literacy co- courses. I, I saw
0: a post saying that daniel uh are can't even pay their June salaries. So
1: they managed to get a lender, but I'm really hoping the lender lends them enough money to pay really generous retrenchment packages, because South Africa hasn't got very little competitive advantage globally in the arms
0: industry. What, what do we? We what, don't need an army. We don't need it.
1: Um, my, if if I was the benevolent dictator of South Africa, I would uh, <laughs> shut down the army. I would keep up keep some boats just to keep some the dodgy people stealing our fish, uh, and I'd have to agree with the country. We'd all have to kind of sign up that if Zimbabwe attacks. We run at them, uh, but I just don't think Zimbabwe's going to attack. <laughs> I just don't think anyone's going to attack us, and if they do, then you know, it won't be great. Um, but probability of that happening is very low, mm. and therefore you're using resources in a, for a low probability outcome, uh, versus probability of a society being destroyed through a lack of education. Pretty high. Let's put the resources to that. Uh, and I, look, I appreciate this probably a lot I don't know. And as is with business, running a government is a series of very difficult trade-offs. Um, but I often worry is, is how, how much of that money is spent uh, for the right reason. Um, you know, I think a good example where we can leapfrog is, is something like textbooks. Um, someone wrote a post saying, you know, it's silly the government's writing textbooks. I don't agree with that at all, actually, uh, particularly for school uh, students there's very you know maybe five percent of the curriculum changes every year I'm, I'm i'm not knowledgeable enough to know whether that's 20 or one percent but you know i can't imagine it to be more than five um someone said to me something to me once which was really profound it's always stuck with me is that no one owns pythagoras's theorem and so find the best teacher in the world film them teaching it let students watch that a khan let, academy yeah um but, you know, in terms of like math textbooks, have the government write them, print them as cheaply as we can. Because paying licensing fees and paying, you know, big education corporations to print textbooks and spending billions of rands on them is an absolute waste of money. Because there's nothing, there's no unique intellectual property in those textbooks that you need to pay that premium for. If the book costs 50 rands to print, we're buying it for 300. Uh, let's write that. Ourselves. But we're buying for 300 because Pearson or whoever it is is paying an author and Pearson has got a, you know, a, a CEO and a chairman and a CFO and they all need a good salary and their big office needs a salary, none of which are relevant nor necessary to the, the poor little girl in Santa 7 who can't afford to buy a mass textbook. Just have the government or it doesn't have to be a government. In fact, they can outsource the creation of the book, but for them to own the IP uh, and in fact, I take it back. I don't like government doing many things. Government should, within a non-corrupt process, uh, put out to tender the, the once off writing uh, of of school level, uh, primary and secondary level textbooks, uh, where the intellectual property of that book will pass to the government. The moment that writing is complete, the government then buys that asset, prints it out at very low cost and gives that to the, to the students. I still believe paper in this context is better than digital, but I'd also advocate for making the books available digitally and for free.
0: Do you read paper books or, or I, digi- I, digital books?
1: I, um, I'm i a bit embarrassed about this, but as soon as something goes beyond, say, three or four pages, I'm in paper. So Don't be embarrassed. I'm with you, man. I can't, I, I can't read digitally very well. I can't either. Um, and every few months, I actually did it this week. I come to Red and Yellow with one of those... Um, those boxes of A4 paper and it's all the stuff I've read in the last few months and I literally arrived with yeah I mean a stack of paper a foot high uh, and I give it to my grads and then they get to go and read all the stuff that I and I bring it in because I just can't throw it away because the paper bit does really bother me uh, ethically but you know if 10 people read the article then I feel less guilty about my paper usage
0: it's like the digital world isn't designed for long attention span it, it, it- no no, and I and and I mean, I can see your leg twitching. You're you're a you 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 kind of guy who's like, I, I, I love
1: me- knowledge. I love learning. Um I got up early this morning because uh, my goal before coming into work was to read the, the Mary Meeker uh, Annual Internet Trends Report, which seems to get longer every year. This is like 350 pages. So it took a bit longer than expected. Uh, but that I have to print it out. I just could not do that on my screen. I would get sore eyes and be painful. I sit in front of
0: a computer enough. Do you think that's uh, like our generation? Do, are the younger kids, I, don't know, I think, no, actually, to have more appetite for digital and…
1: Uh, look, I do find that, um, and you know, I don't want to broad stroke too much, but it, 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 it is indications to say millennials definitely have less attention span. And attention span is something I noticed because I have a short one. And so the ability to to push through long pieces of content seems to be harder for them. I'll give you an example, actually, where it was brought home in the last week. Um, I started uh, at Red and Yellow, uh, the Relentlessly Curious Book Club. One of our values is to be relentlessly curious. There's a sign in our reception that's literally been there for 25 years that says, be a sponge. Uh, And that's really what we pride ourselves on uh, here is really loving information and knowledge and learning. And so we started this book club. And and in a nutshell, we've broken up the the whole school into all all the faculty and, and staff into teams of eight. Uh, and each team chooses a book and they read the book. And once a quarter, we we all the whole school is uh, about 70 staff. We go to the tap room, which we did last week. We've got a, a tap room next door and we take out the restaurant and we sit and discuss our books. And uh, not everyone finished their books. Um, the leading indicators, the leading indicator for didn't finish my book was age. So everyone who is older, now I can't say is older just happens to be more savvy, more responsible, more accountable. Maybe that's just the reason. And maybe once uh, these my 24-year-old grads mature, maybe they'll finish the books. Um, they also chose the hardest books to read. So perhaps they were just less wise in their choice. Um, and Homer Deus, which was one of the, the book choices, I ha- and I've read that myself, it's an, an incredibly good book, but it is... Quite a thing to wade through, and very few of the youngsters succeeded. Um, but I hope that they, because uh, really, what it boils down to is grit, mm. uh, and it's something I, I try and focus on teaching my children is the ability to to be persistent, um, and hopefully that is going to be learned over time.
0: What is the top book from? And you're from that? We chose
1: intentionally not to rank. Okay. Uh, Our ex-go, we read Nudge, which I really enjoyed. It was a a great book. Um, I'm quite into kind of behavioral economics and things like that. Um, Probably the book, I've I've read most of the books on the book list already, and I can say my best book on that list by Miles is Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. It's my most recommended book, Um, and I've read it myself about five times. And I've yet to meet a person who's read that book and doesn't say that's changed my life
0: Mm.
1: because it just shows you so much about humans. Uh, So much of the book can be used for evil if you are that way inclined. but it it demonstrates how humans can be so easily persuaded. And I guess in many respects that falls back to my education argument, because when you read the book and, and do see the incredibly funny examples of how humans can be so easily persuaded in the wrong direction, you realize that the only antidote to that is education and actually mindfulness. Mindfulness is about, in this context, about, being aware in a moment of, of why you're making a decision and thinking through the potential cognitive biases um, and saying, "Am I making this decision for logical, rational, intelligent reasons, or am I making this reason this decision for emotional reasons?" and telling myself it's logical and rational. Being able to separate those that fork in the road in the moment is incredibly hard to do, um, and you need education and the ability to think critically to do it.
0: I think it's even harder to do at the pace that we're living life at the moment. Very true.
1: Very true. Very so true.
0: hard to sit and go, hmm, why am I making this decision? Yeah.
1: yeah. I actually try and create my life to really reduce the number of decisions. My wife won't let me go full Zuckerberg. How long have you been wearing that sense. jersey? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, Mickey's definitely not going to let me wear the same clothes every day. But I, I really would if I, if I could, actually, if I had the guts to do it. Because uh, it's not a decision. I don't enjoy choosing my clothes uh, ever. And um and yet some decisions require a huge amount of pondering. I'd rather leave the, the effort to that.
0: Mm. Have you I'm sure you're familiar with the minimalist movement.
1: Mm. I'm not very good at it. Okay. <laughs> I find that a- I want less stuff. I, I want less stuff. the other thing you learn about life as you get older is actually what makes you happy. Um and you learn that that you know your that new car did make you happy, but you normalize quite quickly. Mm. And so you know, I, I, um, if I really want something, I'm going to get it. But I just raise my bar of what I really want to be quite high.
0: So, so what is it that makes Rob Stokes happy?
1: A new fishing rod.
0: A new fishing rod.
1: Yeah, although I don't fish anymore because I have too many children. But um, that would, that's what used to make me happy. I literally like, I can't think of a single material uh, good that uh, I want. I mean, so I want an Apple Watch. Uh, my lovely wife bought me one and I took it back. Uh, But actually, that was not because I don't want the watch, but that's because the watch wasn't ready for me. Uh, In South Africa, we still can't do the virtual sim, and uh, Spotify and Apple's uh, spat seem to be keeping Spotify's effectiveness from the Apple watch, which means that the watch doesn't give me what I want, so I'd rather get a refund and wait for the next one. But uh, old, maybe more consumer-driven Rob would have just worn the watch for the sake of it. But... uh, yeah yeah the other thing is also I guess is you will probably know yourself when you have children the best way to spend money is on experiences with your kids uh, you know the holidays we've had with the kids are far outweigh any material thing that money could buy me yeah and on the top end of 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 purchases, I like creating rewards for myself uh, so I do have a purchase that I want uh at the top end and I don't I haven't actually set a specific goal but I know exactly. I know when I will deserve it. And for me, it's a business win. I haven't specified a a specific one, but I'll know when I have had a win that for me says you deserve this thing that you want.
0: How long have you been doing that practice, rewarding Um, yourself?
1: Well, quite a few years actually.
0: Um, I think it's a really healthy thing to do. A, a, like self-incentivizing, kind of. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I've had a, a mentor for many years and now a, a chap I work with, and uh, I won't mention his name, but he's a he's a very, very successful South African entrepreneur in technology. I would imagine a billionaire. Um and he started a business that's that would just never well could actually but i mean probability says it won't have a material impact on his wealth. and i said to him why did you do it and he gave two answers that i loved the first was i have to do it because i'm an entrepreneur and um i remember when i sold quirk i went and chatted to a few older wiser entrepreneurs and i and i asked a series of questions and I'll come back to that story, but one of the people I spoke to was a guy called Mendel who You should really have on this podcast. A fascinating human being. Uh, And is really one of the fathers of the internet in South Africa. And yet he's so understated that no one... Has heard of him. That's kind of why I love him. And I said to him, you know, Mendel, here you are. You've had more success than anyone's going to achieve. He's probably in his sixties, I'd guess. Uh, his his uh, love for fly fishing is the same as mine, as is his skill. Not that great. Um, he's probably better than me, actually. And and his answer to me of why he's still being an entrepreneur, he said, "Go and read Old Man and the Sea," which I then did, and I understood exactly what he was talking about. And the crux of it is. It's because it's what you do. Uh, so I, anyway, I asked this, this mentor of mine, why do you create this business? And he said, well, it's, I have this idea in me. I've got to get it out, which resonates with me. I'm going to feel exactly the same. And then the second answer was, was actually what blew my mind. He said "Like, there's this particular private jet, that I really have my eye on and would achieve a particular, I won't explain the outcomes, might give the name away, but achieve something for him actually that practically is valuable. I said, well, buy the jet, you can afford it. And he said, no, I want to get a win first. And so, you know, frankly, this company couldn't, I doubt could give a win big enough to buy the jet, but that's not the point. It's not about the one funding the other. It's about saying, you know, I want to achieve something and feel proud of myself, you know, whether it's material goods or otherwise. uh, And I just love that. And uh, and so I've kind of, in my head at least, doubled down on that for myself.
0: So it's not a private jet you're after? No, it's not. No, it's
1: definitely <laughs> not. Um, it's like... You're not order at that of, level. Or, no, know. it's just an order of magnitude away. Um, no, it's something that's... It is extremely material in its nature. Um, and I've wanted it since... Uh, actually, I don't mind telling you what it is. It's a Porsche 911 turbo. I've wanted it ever since I had the Micro Machinery. Um And... I just, I don't, it's so frivolous, I don't, I don't need it in any way whatsoever. Every time one drives past me, I lust after it. And I'm actually quite happy being in that lusting phase because I know for a fact that if I was to purchase that vehicle within a month, I would be the same human being. So actually, what's the point? And sometimes looking forward to something is more fun than owning it. And when I see one, I, I wanna touch it and I wanna drive in it, I, I just love the sound. Um, I hope that I achieve my outcome before they all go electric because it's not the same um, and yet I'm all for electric cars but um, that's kind of you know I mean whether it materializes I don't know maybe I'll change my mind before I get there maybe I'll never achieve um, the success I want uh, that would justify it in my head because I'd have to, be, it'd have to be a pretty big success and it would have to be an impactful success so it's not a monetary success for me it's a, I, my goal now is not to make money my goal is to save the world uh, and I need to demonstrate to myself that I've made a a meaningful step towards that goal.
0: Have, do you know uh, the name? of Crosley Webb.
1: Yes. Yes. They
0: have like a, I don't know if they still had it, but they have it, but they had a, it was like kind of timeshare for for sports cars where you pay a certain fee every mm. year and you can go drive. Never going to do that. You well, want that it, would, so you uh, want to own it. It's,
1: it's, it's, it's again, it's like it, that would be, I would do that to afford the the material frivolity of it, which is not what I'm after. Nice. I'm, I'm looking, f- in myself at least, to say, you know, well done, Rob. You know, I'm not looking for someone else to tell me well done, I never have. Um, so I, again, you know, it could be something really insignificant and I'll just know in that moment, hey, I've done something that was hard. Um, and I, I like doing hard things. Um, as soon as something gets easy, I get bored.
0: Do you struggle to tell yourself well done?
1: Yes, Yeah. I think all entrepreneurs do. We all have imposter syndrome. We all think we're rubbish and we're going to get found out. Let's hope no one ever does.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to go back to the save the world thing. Was Was there a moment or an experience that switched you from, okay, I want to Run this big agency, make lots of money. I mean, not that I don't know your mindset back then, but that's an assumption to, okay, I want to save the world. That, mm. Was there a moment where that switched for you? Yeah,
1: so it's worth saying that I never started Quirk with any vision, any plan. I literally did it because I didn't want to get a job. Uh, it then became a digital agency, but that wasn't a plan up front. Um, and I was driven by the desire for independence. Uh, I then became compelled by the opportunity to build something cool uh, and particularly build a cool team more than a cool business, um, which I think we did nicely. Um, Quirk had its heydays from kind of 2005, 6, seven, through to 2012. Um, before, so from let's say from 1999 to call it 2006, the the enjoyment there was the challenge because we failed every day we didn't make any money we were totally poor craig and i would maybe take a salary once a year i'm not joking uh we just once a year if we had some money in the bank we'd take some out and hope we didn't go bankrupt uh, and i loved that's what i loved working about with work, work, it's what i loved about working with craig raw is that we were, we were very different people. Uh, he's much cleverer than me. Um, but we're very complementary in business. And we both were aligned behind that strange desire, which wasn't to create a digital agency or make lots of money, which was just be independent and choose your own adventure. So then, you know. So Just so, pause
0: yep. there for a second. How did you afford to live if you were not earning a salary? How Badly. did you eat? I, I How mean, did I, you pay my, rent? How oh, did you... My
1: wife ever listens to this podcast, she's going to totally roll her eyes at this statement. But I literally <laughs> once ate carrots, nothing but carrots, for two weeks. Because carrots are very nutritious and very cheap. And I'm already quite orange, and I started going even more orange. Like, literally, around my mouth, I went <laughs> more orange, so I had to stop that. Um, but I should... I just... I, I mean, it's... You know, if somebody says he wants a 9-11 Turbo, I just don't really care about money. I'm, happy, I'm a happy person. I don't need other stuff... Uh, the only thing in my life right now, the only thing I need to be happy is my family. I could literally leave every other thing behind, um, just not them. And and so I love getting up in the morning and having a new adventure. And that is so much more important to me. And, you know, there's, you know, I wouldn't, be eked out enough to pay the bills, uh, our own bills. Um, I was very fortunate actually my first year out of Varsity, which was 2001, my mom lent me the money to pay my rent. Uh, She charged me interest, and we used to call it the national debt, and every phone call started with her reminding me how big the national debt was, and I repaid it, Um, and I'm hugely privileged to have that. And I think that's a really good example of subtle privilege because Mm. she didn't give it to me, but without that I would have had to have got a job, or I would literally have starved. and Not was, so subtle I mean, privilege. It's, yeah, but it's often like, you know, I'm now i just turned forty, and and I think most forty year olds would kind of forget that, you know. And yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not so subtle, but um, it's it's often forgotten. And often, I think there's two things that most entrepreneurs don't credit nearly enough, and that's privilege and luck, because the right place, right time is a factor of those two things. And you know, I think many people love to think they are the single points of success Um, with Quirk. I was fortunate to have a supportive family, at least in that first year. Well, they were always supportive, but financially in that first year. Um, And also actually it's worth saying that even though they never said this to me and almost went out their way to not say it, um, but I always knew in the back of my mind that if I went to my mom's house, she'd put me in bed and feed me. So I knew, you know, that's at the end of the day, what you need, food and, and and, and a bed. You Not know, even you need a bed, you just need a roof. Uh, I knew I could get those things if everything else failed. I could get those things from her, and um, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. and And I think most entrepreneurs don't realize that, that they they are walking on the shoulders of giants, even if you don't really notice it at the time. And for the luck of Quirk was um, being in the right place, at the right time, with respect to the internet and whatnot. Um, you know, persistence and tenacity. Allowed us to span the the bridge between failure and timing, um, and that's our credit. Um, but we it still took a lot of luck. Um, you know, so sorry so I was saying about the the, the challenge. You know, so in the first first essay, if you broke Quirk up into thirds, first third was was fun because it was so difficult. The second third was fun because it was easy, in terms of growing. But, that, but growth in itself is hard. So we didn't have to fight for customers. They just walked into our doors. But now when you're taking a team from, you know, 20 to 205 years, even less, actually, that causes massive issues, massive issues. Um, you know, I'll give you a silly example. Um, Oh, the first time I met Brent Shahim, who who was the founder of Aqua Online, another agency that no longer exists and, and certainly was the biggest in the country for many years. Um, I met him at at, a, at the very first WPP stream event. I think it was 2006. And he said to me, Rob, how big is Quirk? And I said, oh, we're about 40 people. He said, oh, you've got trouble coming. I said, what's that? He said, when you hit about 50, you're going to need middle management and you can't afford them. And I kind of brushed it off, as you do when a wise person tells you something that has no way of resonating with your current experience. And like six months later or even three months later, bang, ran headlong into that problem. And you have no choice. You end up having to hire middle managers who are quite middling because that's all you can afford. And then a year later, you have to replace them all because you've grown outgrown them all. Um, and that's very challenging. It's it's very stressful, and also with fast growth comes cash flow challenges. So there, there you are. Your you, your business is growing. Your revenue is growing. You're running out of money, and you think like, how's this possible? Um, you know. So that that but that was really exciting and interesting, and then then the kind of the growth slowed. Let's say from. You know, we we grew hundred percent year on year for probably ten years, uh, you know, from one rand to two rand, a <laughs> hundred percently. So it's not that impressive in the beginning, but you know, then it flattened out to kind of twenty percent, and that's when I got bored. And then, the, then, I didn't get bored and started looking for an acquirer. The acquirer then came to us, and then the timing made sense. Um, I've I've always believed in education. I started teaching at Red and Yellow in two thousand one. Very part time. So I, I fell in love with this place very quickly. Renula, I mean, I know I'm biased, but it's an extraordinary institution. I've never come across anything like it. Uh, the, the, the amount that the schools cares about their students and the success of their students and really growing the careers of the students of every level from an 18 year old uh, just out of a trek right up to an 80 year old who's uh, decided to start a business from his home and needs to learn a bit more about digital marketing. Our team genuinely cares like nothing I've ever experienced. And so I got very quickly sucked into that and, and it met my needs to, to change the, to save the world. And I, and I now use the word save and not change. So I think we need saving. And there is an ego component to this is that I want my great, great grandchildren who will never meet me. I hope I get to meet my great ones, but I doubt I'll meet the great greats. and I want to be an inspiration to them. Um, I want to be a role model uh, that they can say, you know, your great granddad did this thing that that helped the world, and not. I I never wanted to be created a great digital agency. That's actually repulsive to me. If that's the point of inspiration, Um, but you know, kind of like a really like a five hundred year old oak tree that just is big and beautiful, and you know, just creates shade for people over centuries, and just you know, adds that value to the world. I'd be quite pleased if, if that if I could be that that oak tree
0: so I've got two questions one is how are you educating your students now for the mayhem that's happening in the agency world because all these graduates are going out there and assuming looking for jobs and the jobs are less and mm. agencies are crumbling and closing mm. their doors and how are you grappling with that
1: there's two answers to that question firstly fortunately thanks to our founders uh, 25 years ago red and yellow as an institution and as a brand doesn't actually have that problem um, our employment rate is deep into the 90s okay. in fact I, I think I, I couldn't say this even, now. Actually. Yeah, even, even now even okay. now uh, I, I think the only people who would graduate from red and yellow and not get a job are the ones who have chosen not to um, you know so that's the short term answer but I don't think that's that's good enough in the long term Um and and also we're saying that increasingly our, our grads are not going to agencies; they're going into into in-house in, teams, into, yeah, um, or not even going into marketing and advertising. Um, you know, incre- increasingly they're going into product innovation, and which I would argue is also part of marketing, but the world often doesn't agree with that.
0: Um,
1: but then on the flip side, you know, maybe the deeper part of your question is how are we preparing the students for the next twenty five years of work, which which is f- changing rapidly and will continue to do so. And there uh, we've got two kind of overlapping points of view here. So the first is that creative thinking is the most important skill of the future. Uh, In a world where robots, and I'm talking in a a, a generation, which is 24.1 years, um, I really do believe, uh, in fact, I think it's crazy not to see this, the writing's on the wall, that Within that generation, most, most, like more than 50% of the jobs we know today literally will not exist. Um, and it's 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 for no other reason just simple economics because if a farmer is choosing between a robot and a person and they are the same cost and doing the same job, they're going to choose the robot. Because as every business owner knows, the number one source of pleasure in, and pain in every single business that's ever existed is people. And so, uh, the the pleasure uh, factor is one thing, but the you know people strike and they get sick, and what which robots don't. And so, if all the other things are being equal, that farmer's choosing the robot. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And very soon they won't be equal because the robot will be a tenth of the price of the human. Then the then there's no emotion about it at all.
0: And the robot doesn't take days off. Yeah. But and the, the robot but, can work at night. But
1: robots, <laughs> at least in that time frame, can't think creatively. And I think creatively, I don't mean. I mean, it is part of it. But what I'm not talking about is is art and music and whatnot. Yeah, I I do think that's also uh, fairly bulletproof. But we can actually come back to music because I've got a unique or a new point of view on that. And
0: there's an AI that's made art. Yeah. So I mean, that's a whole. That
1: can move you emotionally. Uh, the, hmm. the problem with ai is it doesn't fully understand the human condition yeah but you know creative thinking in business is about problem solving and innovation um, and that's where business value lies it's in innovation and that's what we want red and yellow students to be best at is coming up with the creative ideas in business not just in advertising or marketing business as a whole that is going to be a step change in value uh, and it's going to make a real impact on the business. And, I be, and, and what Red and Yellow, you know, so I'm talking about the next 25 years, what we have been best at in the last 25 years is teaching business leaders future and present to think creatively. So, you know, we have this list of five uh, strengths of Red and Yellow and the first one written slightly flippantly is we are actually creative. It's not a story that we tell ourselves and our customers. We are actually creative. And therefore, we're very good at teaching it and and teaching people to think differently. And that's how uh, I believe we will prepare our students for the next 25 years. And then kind of alongside that, we've identified um, with creative thinking at the top of the list, 10 uniquely human skills that infuse everything that we teach. Uh, so empathy, critical thinking, as I've discussed before, negotiation, persuasion. These are all things that are are going to be hard for robots to replace. And in many respects, they're about people. So if creative thinking is about ideas, uh, the 10 uniquely human skills that we've identified, uh, and a very similar overlap to World Economic Forum and whatnot, um, they are about moving people. So it's all very well and good coming up with a unique idea, a new business opportunity, what have you. But for the most part, the ability for one person to truly capitalize on a great idea is very limited. You've got to get people along with you. And so skills like persuasion, empathy, teamwork, uh, negotiation, critical thinking, they're all skills. Really, what it comes down to is taking people along with you uh, to make sure that the idea that you have or that your business has is executed in its most effective way. And all of those things, I think, are pretty robot proof. And that's why people come to Red and Yellow.
0: Do you, is there a component of what you're teaching or the way you're teaching that that speaks to like the crisis of the world that we're sitting in, and and focusing on like social innovation rather than just pure for the sake of it, more gadgets, more stuff?
1: A little bit. Um, what's interesting is that probably the best thing about millennials. Is, uh, and this is when I like to be included as one, uh, even though I don't think I am, um, is they are very purpose driven. And I feel I am purpose driven. Um, that's what excited when when I'm working towards a bigger something bigger than myself. That's when I'm most excited. And all almost all our students are like that. So it's almost like we don't have to solve that problem for them. If they if they have to choose a company to do a project on, they're going to choose one with some sort of social uh, impact. Um, we try not to channel their thinking into too a specific an area because I think that undoes the point of it in the first place. So we allow them to go as broad as they like. But as I said, they tend to choose things that are are more purpose oriented.
0: It's like baked in already.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the, the, at our grad showcase last year, I mean, I was really blown away by some of the projects that the students did that were either, um, you know, trying to solve some sort of societal issue or just demonstrating an understanding of a societal problem. or one of them was around alcoholism, and they didn't actually have a solution to the problem, nor were they trying to in this particular project. But the way they creatively articulated the problem was was quite unique and mind blowing, actually. Um, and we like to give them the freedom to explore those spaces that we may not come up with ourselves.
0: Hmm. And the, the reason why I'm asking those questions is because I feel that so, like we as a world we need to change a lot of what we're doing because we, we're messing it up mm. in, on a big scale mm. and we have to do it fast because we're running out of time yeah. and I think the creative industry up until now has had a big part to play in, in creating this rampant consumerism which has helped destroy the world and those minds that are sitting behind all that I think are some of the most creative minds mm. that exist and if channel
1: They're selling brandy
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And if channeled in a more constructive way, a a, a lot of what we're facing could be, I think, I don't know if solved, but maybe solved. Maybe just as a society, as a species, we would we would feel better about ourselves. Or
1: I'd hope so. Yeah, I mean, look, I believe capitalism is the best system, and so in its
0: current format.
1: I didn't say that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I'm I'm a bit weird in this regard because actually, I I'm afraid to say the sentence of it positions me wrong, but I think probably the best system is communism. But people watch Chernobyl and they think, "Oh, look at that! Communism failed." No, that's not that was the Russian implementation of communism, which was extremely poor. And that, it was an awful system. I mean, you only have to watch Chernobyl to think, goodness me, I'm glad I wasn't around in that circumstance. But what is communism? It's everyone owns everything. That I like. I don't believe in national borders. I think we are a collective human, a tribe, whatever you want to call us, and anything that divides us should Mm. be removed. Mm. Um, What is the best system for organizing resources Within that tribe, I've yet to see a better one than capitalism. The problem with communism and socialism, which are not the same thing, uh, socialism is not the state owns everything. Communism is everyone owns everything. That's why I prefer communism. The problem is that it's 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 too difficult to implement mm. because you have a centralized set of decision makers who it's impossible for them to have the requisite information to make resource allocation decisions properly. And therefore, what capitalism does is it devolves that decision-making to the edges where information is best. Uh, information is most available, should I put it that way. And that's why I think it's, it's the most high-functioning system that we have. My, my choice is, is, a, is a kind of a capitalist welfare state. So I really believe in, in um UBI. Well, I'm kind of moving towards negative, negative income tax, but kind of the same thing, but, but really raising the floor on poverty. Um, I don't believe we need to work. I think we've got enough technology to, for work not to be a thing. People want to play Xbox all day, so be it, and I'm happy to pay them to do so. Uh, I don't believe we need to have a world where um, we have poor people begging on the street. Uh, I think it reduces all of our quality of life, let alone the poor person who's begging Mm -hmm. on the street. And uh, the people with wealth should share that wealth uh, with those people. The key thing is they have to share it through a non-corrupt and efficient system. I do believe there is a chance for a better hybrid system – that uses technology to better allocate resources. Uh, and, that and that's where
0: blockchain and things blockchain like that Blockchain and in.
1: AI c- could combine. The blockchain, in other words, removing the need for a central authority, which is just going to be more prone to, to corruption and nepotism and whatnot. Um, and then the AI, because it just can handle more inputs, uh, and in theory, in most cases, produce therefore better outputs, not universally true. And I think we've got quite a way to go before we've uh, removed our own cognitive biases that we've baked into AI from the AI, which which has potentially massive unintended consequences. Um I, you know, I'm also I'm a laissez-faire capitalist. Like, Government must stay away. Government just messes up most things. They should only intervene when there's a direct and explicit negative externality. Uh, so telling people what they can do and not do in their own homes, stop it. None of their business, waste of time, waste of resource. Because there will be a person in government who's paid to do that. Remove them. Remove the people who are paid to censor content. Remove them. All they're doing is getting in the way of freedom of speech and they're costing us money, money that could be spent on a universal basic income. But drunk driving has a massive negative externality because you might run over my child. So government should intervene there. Absolutely. But if there's no explicit negative externality, you know, smoking has a negative externality. um, Unless the entire health system is privatized, which it isn't, you know, society has it's to bear the, the cost way. of the smoker. And therefore, I'm actually uh, for uh, syntaxes on smoking. And, and again, you've got to have a, an efficient... Organized, organized, efficiently organized government that says, "Right, we're going to take the sin taxes from smoke and make sure they go towards treating cancer patients who can't afford it, uh, and take the sin taxes from alcohol and, and treat people who've, who've been injured or, or, or killed or whatnot in, in, a, in a drunk driving accident." Um, but you know, telling people they can't—I don't know, whatever it is—doing something you know, like walking down, the, you should be able to walk down the street naked. That's not there's no downside to that. It's a human body. Why you'd spend any time policing that, not that we necessarily do, but uh, it's a frivolous example. We're just It's just none of government's business. Stay away and focus on the things that are going to add real value to society and focusing on the problems that are really distressing our society and don't mm-hmm. worry about the frivolous stuff in between.
0: I think there are very few governments in the world, I mean, we're getting very political here again, but that are doing that effectively, um, if, if any, because I don't know. Anyway, I mean, that's governments
1: just, that's... seem to be reaching more into the lives of their of their people. And I think it's a deep rooted sense of insecurity because I think <clears throat> most governments today are in a hundred year time frame, the blockbusters of the year 2000, um, because the blockchain is going to remove them. Uh, It's probably going to take a long time, probably at least a few hundred years, and it may not be a blockchain, but it'll be some sort of decentralized um, system that allows us to trust each other um, and allows us to monitor negative externalities without that central authority. You know, if, if, every, if everyone had a chip on them that measured all the stuff and you could see, oh, Lee's drunk too much and you get in a car, system automatically bans your, you from starting your car. And just because you press the button in your car to go, assuming you're not self-driving by then, you start, you're not allowed to drive for two thing, years. Yeah. Your car will not work for two years. Don't need a government. Use a program. That, that's smart contracts, all of it. Don't need a government for that. But what you do need is trust because I don't want to let the government run that smart contract because now, just now they don't like me. You know, I'm I'm a dissenting voice. I'm saying, oh, you know, this government I don't agree with, now they turn me off. So I'm worried about digital money that's centrally controlled because if all money is digital, you can turn off a dissenting voice. And that's really, really worrying to me.
0: You've spoken, I think you've got to go. So one last question is um, you've spoken a couple of times of like a longer future span. So your great grandkids or 100, 200 years time, um, That says to me that you feel hopeful that we're going to fix our climate crisis that's looming and we're going to find a way through it.
1: Yeah, Eventually, the baby boomers are all going to go away, Lee, and they are the problem here. Uh, It's one of the biggest issues I have, the arguments I have with my dad is that um, they messed up the planet and now we have to deal with it and our children have to deal with it. I'm always an optimist about everything, often blindly so. So just because I'm optimistic doesn't mean I'm right. But I am always an optimist. Um, I believe in people and I believe we can sort stuff out. I think one of the biggest problems in the world right now is that decisions are being made by people who don't have to bear the consequences of those decisions. You know, if you look at Trump's trade war, you know, I'm sure there's some... Trumpian benefits commercially that he's going to receive through his organization as a result of the trade war. I don't think any of his decisions are altruistically driven. Um, but at the end of the day, the consequences of the trade war have the potential to spill over into generations beyond him and he'll be long gone. Um, you know, you don't see your average 60 year old, average, there are obviously exceptions, uh, as a group in government You know, saying, hey, we need to eliminate carbon output because they're very entrenched in their mindsets as are all, I will be too. Um, and fundamentally, they don't have to deal with the consequence. It's actually my It's my issue is Brexit as well. If you look at the demographics of the Brexit vote, uh, it's almost uh, a split. The older population vote leave, the youngest vote stay. And the the youngest, the, I, if you I'd me. run it, I would have, you're right, if you're under the age of 50, you get two votes, over the age of 50, you get one vote. And then let the chips fall where they may. Um, but if you if you have to deal with the consequences of the outcome for twice as long as everyone else, you should get more say in the outcome. But the world doesn't think that way because no, it's not that it educated. It doesn't.
0: It's sure going to be bloody interesting the next 20 years. Uh, one last thing, I, I watched this uh, amazing talk or well, it was like an introduction to a conference. I don't really know what the, the I should have done more research, but the what the organization Hexagon What they do. But he spoke about um, we've got all these problems to fix. If the whole of the US went to electric cars today, their grid would melt because they actually can't handle it. That's interesting. So how do we bridge the gap between now and getting our technology up to date so that we can make the transition? And it's all about efficiencies. So they process data. Uh, One example he used was electric cars... I mean, normal cars, uh, petroleum cars, their efficiency is 20%. Wow. First, you put in 100, 20% you get out 20. Stuff, but, yeah. but Formula One have have uh, figured it out where they're getting 50% efficiency. Wow. So, And if you apply that thinking mm-hmm. to all our industries and get more efficient, he, they've done all the calculations. They can bring the carbon emissions down humongously, which will buy us another 20, 30 years in order to figure out all the technology issues to transition, which I think is a nice way of thinking.
1: Look, I mean, a, a slightly less nice way of thinking, which I think is more accurate, that I actually just heard yesterday, which makes me sad, is uh, we're already losing. We're already losing species. We're already losing environments, in some cases entire islands. What we're going to find out is how much we're going to lose. So if we solve the problem in 50 years, we're going to lose a whole lot more than if we solve it in 10 years. And for me, that's that's a better way of looking at it than you know. There's this is protest um, that was kind of like you know. We've got twelve years left. Well, then, until what? You know, the world's not going to, plans not just going to end. Um,
0: no, it's twelve years until we're going to breach the one point five yeah. pers- but what degree mark. We lose more stuff. You yeah, know,
1: people, yeah. species, all of which is unacceptable in my opinion, and, sh- and could and should be stopped today. But it's not a black and white. It's a continuum, and the continuum probably gets worse uh, as you go. But it's a case of, it's not a case of we have a deadline. It's a case of that deadline's passed already. It actually passed probably 30 years ago when we started losing species at a at an at a, uh, above natural rate. Um, and it's up to us now to stop that. And for me, honestly, the sooner we can get the baby boomer boomers out of politics um, and start putting... F- it feels awkward to say it, but millennials in charge, um, I think we'll end up in a better place. They may have short attention spans and greater levels of entitlement, but they care. they got more empathy. People and the planet mm. and purpose. And, and I think that will lead them to make the right decisions.
0: Mm. Great way to wrap up.
1: Thank you, Lee. It's Thanks, Rob. You've
0: got to run. Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to Seed Pod with me, Lee Rail. Thank you so much for your attention. I know that it's not always easy to listen to a conversation that's an hour or more these days with time being so pressed. So, I really appreciate those who are listening to these conversations, and I hope you're getting as much value out of it as I am. I'm walking away with nuggets of wisdom from each conversation, and I trust that you are as well. You might have noticed that there's a little bit more noise in the backgrounds. Of the recordings that's because i'm not in a studio anymore i have gone on my own i've got a mobile setup and so i'm doing it all myself i'm recording myself i'm editing myself and so if there's any feedback if it's too loud too soft too noisy let me know if you, if you have any feedback as to the content of the podcast I'd love to hear from you otherwise keep listening keep sharing and keep being inspired